Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. On this episode, we have Neil Patel. Neil was born and raised in Leicester, the United Kingdom, where he gained crucial experience as an entrepreneur while young working in his family's business. He moved from there into real estate, establishing one of the most successful offices in the region. At 25, he launched his own real estate business and used that as a launching pad to introduce technology into the property purchasing process, creating OneMove Technologies. He migrated to Canada shortly thereafter and launched a company helping businesses create videos to support their marketing efforts. He moved from there into 3D printing of furniture. That interest in design led him to start Kabuni, which has now pivoted into a virtual reality platform that will launch in 2021. Neil, thank you so much for being on our show. That pleasure to, to join us, Ian. Um, been looking forward to this for some time. You've got such uh, an amazing background and, and history as a, as an entrepreneur, um, and all the the multitude of things you've accomplished. And um, I was very moved by a, a recent video you posted around uh, leaving a legacy, and uh, that motivation I think is uh, really phenomenal. And um, a particular phrase that you used in that video really resonated. Um, you're a champion of uh, having a life of wants and not needs, um, which I think is absolutely brilliant. So going way back, um, you were born in, in Leicester. Yeah, I was born in Leicester in 1974. And, okay. uh, and your family had migrated from Gujarat there, your, your no, parent generation? From Africa. Ah, right. Okay. People had to move overnight they took the british plane and um we ended yeah. up in england so you were in uh uganda i wasn't my parents were um, and um I, I was born in leicester obviously but yeah they came from uganda but originally from gujarat is where the heritage yeah. was from sure. yeah 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 nice and then um it's an entrepreneurial family, I understand. And even as a schoolboy, you became involved in the family business. Uh, share with us about that. Yeah, I did. My uh, mom and dad ran a local supermarket in Leicester. And um, even as young as 10, 11, 12, I was doing the cash and carry with them and stacking shelves. And then I used to compete with my mom and dad on the till to add up the basket of uh, you know, tins and bread and eggs, whatever somebody had bought. I suppose that's where some of my math skills came from. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that was certainly where I had a flavor of, of being an entrepreneur. Nice. I mean, at the time, I didn't know it meant that, but looking back, right. that's how I oh, Of course, of course. Now, uh, do you have siblings, Neil? I do. I have an amazing sister who is in London. She has three kids. And uh, an just as amazing brother who's now in London too with two kids. Gotcha. So, and are you the oldest? Are they both younger than you? 
I am the oldest, uh, and my brother is the youngest. And gotcha. Okay, very cool. So, um, uh, tell us about, uh, like, I, I'm just curious, you, you moved into real estate, um, uh, kind of once you were done with school and, uh, what was the, what prompted that? What was the interest there? Well, the truth is I wanted to be a professional cricket player and that kind of <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> so, uh, becoming an estate agent was down to, uh, my uncle, Alan. Ashok Patel, who basically was a successful estate agent in West London and gave me a chance to give it a go. And um, that's what I did. So entered and worked, which is my only ever job that I had was with Townend's estate agents. I became uh, one of their most successful managers running a Middlesex branch, taking it from loss, losing money to making money. And nice. um, within just before my 25th birthday, I decided that I would leave the the job and go and become an entrepreneur and open my own. Nice. That's what where you when you launched Madison's estate agents. Correct. Madison's yeah. estate agents. It grew to four offices, then it got franchised, and ultimately, that's where my late 90s I looked and moved into technology. Gotcha. And that's when you launched uh, One Move. Correct. Yes. So yeah. One Move was with the vision of us um, becoming a platform to shrink the uh, timeline to moving home. You know, in England, it's 12, 15 weeks. Uh, 30% of purchases fall through, which is unlike America or Canada. And we built a platform in partnership with BlackBerry, actually, believe it mm. or not. This is pre-iPhone. Um, we wanted a mobile application and there was nothing on the market. The BlackBerry had just been out a couple of years and I rang BlackBerry up and we then effectively programmed a HTML experience on the old blue, black, quirky keyboard and an email account. And we used to loan them out to customers whilst they were moving home. So they had a flow of communication, which today we would call an app store and notification. And because there was no other choice in the market, we couldn't do that. But five years later, the app store came out and Apple came yeah. out, which effectively brought to reality what we needed five years sooner than, than when we potentially had it. <laughs> You're ahead of your time. Yes, a sin of yeah. a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, I mean, you talked about having this very successful real estate business. Um, and what was the, the lure to do something on the technology side? Is this like, a, in addition to cricket, has technology been kind of a, a lifelong passion of yours or something you've always been engaged with and curious about? You described me as an early adopter. For sure and i think even in our estate agent days um if you even looked at the office um branding today it was flat screens we were one of the first to adopt crm systems back in the day people used to agents used to have plastic boxes with a to z or price point 
coins and people's details on a card and they'd lock them at lunchtime in their drawer so no one else would steal them when they've gone out to steal their sales or potential sales so very early on i adopted technology and truly understood that this ultimately would allow a human being do things faster better and cheaper it's kind of been the thing that's always stuck in my mind when I look at tech is does this improve and create efficiency and can we do mm. it faster, better, and cheaper? Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. So driven by efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, this market that you've described, um, yeah, the, the moving market, obviously it's ripe with uh, inefficiencies and so uh, a way to streamline it. Uh, 2020. Still many inefficiencies. It's still happen. bad, right? Exactly. Still- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's just fascinating when you think about like the, uh, I mean, the, the Ubers of, and Lyfts of the world or the Airbnbs, like um, those concepts started because of inefficiencies around those those markets. Uh, and Yeah, and, and I think, you know, not think someone will solve it there is a better business model to buy and sell a home there just is um but you've got so many moving pieces in a home transaction you know from the beginning of having an estate agent or a realtor you've then got another human family on the other side who have their own lawyers you know then you've got lawyers moving companies utilities there's so many pieces in the process that you know, I think today a good API that created a single data entry point um, that would in real time do certain things would effectively create huge efficiency, which is what we tried to achieve at one move through conveyancing. But um, it's there's still a huge, huge industry that's that's up for, for disruption, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, this uh, uh, company you started was acquired by a Canadian group um, about 15 years ago, about 06 or so. Tell us about that yeah. transaction. How did that come about? Well, it was my first foray. They acquired, um, it was funny, it was, um, they came to England. I just met my wife, who I'm now married to, 17 year, 15 years, been together 17 years. And um, we were looking for investment. And we, we, what we were looking for is a strategic investor that had a, a cloud-based technology platform. And you've got to remember late 90s, cloud-based was still a very early thinking thing. Yeah. Uh, people were still desktop-based software. Uh, that, you know, you ran CDs to, to upgrade and, and, and still remember getting CDs to upgrade our software and servers. But so we went very early on, late 90s. One Friday night, I emailed a company in Vancouver and um, it was Friday night, sent the email Monday morning. I got an email back from the chief operating officer saying, we're thinking of entering the UK market and we're very interested. Can we arrange a time to come over? A few months later, they came over. And on the day we're sitting, I'd already, Madison's had already been franchised to the franchise E and the franchisor. And I Kept, I kept access to the office around the top floor. They came in and at the end of the meeting, the CEO president said, uh, what are you doing tonight? And I said, uh, nothing. And ultimately I met them for some sushi in London and they wrote some numbers on a 
on a piece of paper and we struck a deal that they would acquire um you know i can't remember the specific details they ended up acquiring the whole company through a staged purchase yeah. and ultimately yeah. taking the company public on the canadian stock exchange nice wow amazing now uh, what did that experience feel like were you kind of ready to sell or you wanted to have a partner did you maintain a, a good ownership stake i kept a controlling stake until 2008 um where i got caught into the, the financial meltdown but sure. until i was the largest shareholder um, we had a group president ceo i was the uk ceo and um the goal wasn't to really sell out it was to find financial security to grow and yeah. it was a learning for me understanding sometimes it's not about controlling a stake and having over 51%, you can achieve what you can with, with, without having to control uh, via a position of percentage, but other ways and means to control a company to grow and have some financial security behind you to yeah. do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and um, things kind of uh, wound down, you mentioned as a result of the financial crisis in 2008, and real estate was probably one of the biggest sectors to be hit at that yeah. time. Yeah, our business model was built on making money every time somebody moved. And right. uh, if you recall back in 2008, it was an overnight collapse. Right. And um, you know, not proud to say lost my home. Uh, the only thing I managed to keep was my wife who was pregnant with our third daughter. We had, mm. we just had twins 18 months before. Wow. You know, my cars got forklift picked off the forklift off our front home. And wow. um, the company survived though. Um, the company remained viable because it was growing really well in Canada and uh, to in the last three years it exchanged hands for i think 150 million dollars in canada wow. so it's okay. still one of the largest um technology companies in the world that was built for conveyancing ultimately yeah yeah wow um i appreciate the candor there neil um not easy to go through those uh situations but um clearly or say, or say it, it, yeah <laughs> It took years for me to uh, be able to just uh, say what actually happened because I think you're ridden as an entrepreneur with guilt and um, many other things. But uh, yeah, it was. It is what it is. I I made some poor decisions and uh, I ultimately uh, recognize that as a leader, it, the buck starts with you. And um, but. You know, one thing I do learn, have learned through life, it's you're not, you can get back up, dust yourself down and you have the freedom to give it a go again. Yeah, no, 100%. And uh, oftentimes, um, you know, we're making the best decisions we can with the information we have at the time. Yes. And so, yes. you know, no, and there's no way. Sorry. I was just going to comment. There's no way you would have had the intel that uh, Lehman Brothers was about to implode. It was. <laughs> I still remember we had we had two investors and a bank ready to extend credit and invest for equity, and in one week, 
everything just went you know to part like yeah. every phone call i picked up was like another bad message that you know yeah. we we were going to do this but we're you know battening down the hatchets there's there's yeah. a big 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 challenge ahead and, and we're sorry kind of thing and um you you have to cope with that yeah no it's uh, we have it has to be absorbed in some way or another and so uh, kudos for weathering that storm um in the process uh, uh, during that year 2008 you actually migrated to winnipeg was that um a part of a transition plan or actually not we'd always said me and nina that we would um explore another country winnipeg mm. was definitely not really our first choice and again just being candid um we nina was from winnipeg she was pregnant um we had very little money the pound was 2.2 sorry the dollar was 2.2 to the pound so anything we did have we, we we doubled in in a, in a move and nina needed security with her mom and dad and, and friends and family being around because we sure. had our twins 18 months prior to that that were born premature and uh, we told we were told I had a 30% chance of survival so this was the next pregnancy wow. after that yeah so it wasn't really a choice and an, or a luxury of decision making but it was the right thing to do absolutely no for sure that makes a tremendous amount of sense um and um well i didn't uh, realize that about your your twins um what a challenging uh, experience to go through um yes having them being born premature and by three months at 1.8 pounds yeah well but uh, they're thriving now as we can see in some oh, family videos science, that you've shared science, yeah, science and technology yeah what you got to put that down to is, is yeah without innovation there they would not be alive today well amazing well it's fantastic. well i also would uh, give a lot of credit to uh, parents who weren't willing to hear any other response except that uh, their daughters would thrive so kudos on you and nina yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely um well so while in winnipeg um you you started this business uh, web idiots um doing online marketing, focusing on, on videos. Yeah, that, that was, um, so two things. Again, I had limited resource. Um, this is the truth. <laughs> My wife's probably gonna shoot me for saying this, but um, <laughs> she did say as we, we had six months, enough to survive for six months, and we had incredible support from my in-laws. And um, she said, you're gonna get a job, right? And I says, I've, I said, no, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> so I spent months, I would honestly now look back and I've shared this depressed because everything I'd touched from the age of 14, had touched to gold. I had a beautiful house, I built a business, I'd gone public. You know, these are all journeys an entrepreneur you dream of. Absolutely. And then one week, um, that entire dream bubble burst. So a few weeks into Winnipeg, I one thing that when I analyzed 
where could I have improved, not just in decision-making, but operationally in, in one move. And we spent a fortune on marketing and at the time digital marketing. And we didn't have evidence to show that we'd made those decisions well, or we'd measured it. So I wanted to, I wanted to understand how can you spend money on digital marketing with a footprint and not measure it and not understand getting a return. And how do you now with standard words, split test, et cetera, that exist. So I hired uh, a research and the other tripping point was arriving in Winnipeg. It's minus 40 in the winter plus 30 in the summer. And you couldn't buy pizzas online. You couldn't buy clothes online. Like digital, it was like I'd landed in Mars. Like Tesco's was delivering in England in 2008 and you could buy clothes online here. So I was like, did a bit of research. The broadband per capita was better than England. It was the mm. best in Canada in, in Manitoba. So I'm still thinking, and then we, we leased a car and the guy at Ford gave me a, a business card with a Hotmail account on it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this would not be accepted in England. So I, I, I dug my heels, spent a little bit of money on some research, got a, a firm to, to call a thousand companies and ask them, um, do you have a website, digital strategy, social media? Yes, no, and, and, and the answers. And shockingly, the stats, and these are as accurate as, as I'll say, but you know, move a few percent here and there, but over 50% didn't have a website. Mm. Of the 50% that did have a website, 90% didn't even know what it did. 80% <laughs> Facebook what, like what social media. Right. And, and then in the comments side of, of why they hadn't was a cost issue where somebody could come in and say 2000 pounds for website or 200,000 and companies not knowing who's telling them the truth and a common feed a common theme that occurred in the commentary was i feel like an idiot mm. and so that whole research <laughs> what shall i call it i said let's call it idiot. that's great that's <laughs> awesome it's like and, the book series um you know technology for dummies or well, that, programming well, for dummies yeah, and there was a bit of a spin for us for that web idiots, and, and that's how the name <laughs> born. Again, my wife said, "What did you just say? You're, you're coming into my town? I've never been here, and you're calling your company web idiots?" Uh, <laughs> that's how it was born. Oh, that's so great! Um, and you ran that for a few years. Yeah, five, six years. Um, yeah, it um, we did great. Uh, some exceptional relationships came from it all over the world. I truly started to understand that you can measure every cent, pound, dollar, penny that you put into digital marketing and, and uh, you have agility to move the dial if you know what you're doing. Yeah. And parallel to that developed, um, I always wanted to move from service to product back one day. You know, the service game for me is not... Um, truly where my wants lie it was a, mm. it was a, a line between for the first time in my life I had to draw a line between need and want and it was somewhere yeah. in the middle and I wanted to really push to that I want to wake up doing this and we just used every spare moment and time and spare capital to test 
different hypotheses in where I wanted to enter back into scaling something. Oh, fantastic. Well, and it was it that thought process that birthed Kabuni in 2013? Yes. Yes, it did go through a few different iterations of name. Um, and Whole new home that. at one point, right? Yeah, well, we got a cease and desist from... Um, oh. um, who was, it's a big uh, uh, equivalent to Debenhams in Canada, and I can't remember the name right now. They had a product, uh, wasn't quite a whole new home, it was whole home, and we got a season desist just mm. before launch. Um, and we had a choice, do we fight it or do we find a new name? And ultimately, uh, we chose to invest the money that we would have spent to fight it to come up with a new name because not everybody felt whole new home was the perfect kind of name. We always said that one day yeah. would look at an acquisition or something, and Kaboom mm. was born. Nice. Well, and if you could share with the audience the, the meaning of Kabuni. So if you change the A to a U, uh, so K-U-B-N-U-I, in Swahili, it means design. Right. It's really a perfect name for what you were doing and uh, the direction you were heading in. Yeah. And, and, and you know, but if you do, yeah, again, it's an Algerian case, not the way that we do. But we took the view, Apple means a green apple, but Apple defined the brand to be their own. And we felt that not many people know what an Algerian cake is. So right. therefore, Booney spelt the way that we did, would will just define it as our own brand, like Apple did for, for, for yeah. Apple. Yeah, no, absolutely. So initially, this was really a, a design uh, exchange or a network. A design platform. So imagine uh, Pinterest with human beings designing mood boards and making recommendations for you for buying furniture and designing your oh, home. Right. Nice. And uh, we grew that, uh, went public in the Australian Stock Exchange and uh, nice. raised uh, 12 million Canadian dollars and built the platform. Uh, but ultimately, um, we recognized three years in that uh, a number of reasons that that would not become profitable and, and grow to, to where we had aspired to grow it. Gotcha. And is that the time when you got into the 3D printing of furniture? Yeah, it's exactly the time. I went to a conference um, which Peter Diamandis was talking out, talking out, and I walked away from there uh, really feeling a sense of energy and understanding that actually the real digital revolution hadn't taken place yet and exponential technology like ai robotics 3d printing immersive blockchain quantum were really going to shape society in future and uh that was kind of coming away from there um was a clear understanding for me that if I'm going to invest the rest of my life into building something that's got purpose behind it, um, then and understand the true meaning of design, then, then I had to pivot. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. And so, uh, hence, Print the Future was born. Yeah, Print the Future was born, and um, we spent uh, time in exploring 3D printing and what it meant to the world 
and I still believe 3D printing will one day decentralize manufacturing and make it more hyperlocal and purely custom. Uh, you're talking materials like glass becoming a reality to in, in on a Monday, Friday night morning. You know, you, you got a party in the, in the evening, you could literally design glasses and get delivered the same day, probably by an Amazon drone. I mean, Amazon have filed a patent to effectively 3D print outside your house. Wow. In their vans. Amazing. <laughs> well, now, is, is Print the Future still active? No, um, I didn't uh, pursue uh, from R&D to commercialization um, on a number of reasons, but mainly because materials were still at a point where if I stood by my statement, unlock the design potential of humanity yeah. by leveraging exponential technology and net measuring the net positive, we fell away on the net positive. Gotcha. Okay. We couldn't measure no, a net positive. You would right. always be doing some form of damage with the materials. But right. that will change. That will ultimately change in the future. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's really just kind of a resin uh, initially that um, was available. I mean, the, the recyclability aspect is, is intriguing because if you wanted to to shift, you could sort of. This is my understanding of it: is you could melt that down and try again. Is that true? Yes, we we, we ourselves explored the recycling of. Um, products that our customers had return recycle rebuild uh, but it's early stage technology you know we're just yeah. society is barely now recycling yeah. hundreds of years of waste now and, and it's it's becoming evident that we have to do more of that so when you think of recycling resin and materials you're talking an entire supply chain infrastructure that you have to build and the industry is just not you know but there are some yeah. incredible incredible um, platform being built in 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 additive manufacturing, from you right. know literally printing body parts to uh, reimagining design for for industries. Yeah, no, no, it's it's tremendous what's being done there. I mean, you talk about science and technology and innovations and how it can be lifesaver, life enhancer. Certainly, all those elements are there. Um, I understand your your son got a skateboard out of the uh, endeavor. We designed the skateboard for sure, and it printed um, on a particular printer. And we we had a store in New York for thirty days that printed not just furniture, but printed so many different things. It was the moment that halfway through I realized that it was beyond printing furniture. That actually, you know, this fifty-five-year-old gentleman walked in with a patent idea, didn't have a prototype. It would have cost him fifteen thousand pounds to create a prototype. It was it was something to do with dentures, and on three D printing, we could have done it for a few hundred pounds. You know, it, it was this realization again unlocked the design potential of humanity. It applied um, in its wholeheartedly. It did, but then ultimately, we just felt um, that on the um, material side. The, the net positive isn't as strong as as or clear as we'd like to make it and it would take yeah. a lot of energy to, to achieve a net neutral yeah yeah and we know yeah. where plastics are and the problem plastics are creating today right. absolutely wow um well so then share with us about uh, this most latest uh, pivot of kabuni 
and the area that you're going into now. And it, obviously it's, it's very intriguing because um, uh, your mission is to uh, positively impact 1 billion people. Yeah, lofty goal, I think, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so repeating, you know, something that I've said is I've still got it on my um, computer today. Unlock the design potential of every human being by leveraging exponential technology and creating a net positive every time with our user was something that was born four years ago. I, I couldn't confidently say what it meant, but I can today. And the journey of pivots that I've taken have truly been to find that formula that I can hold tight to and be confident that when I pass one day and my kids talk about our mission, there is absolute a sense of clarity that we pursued it in its purest way. And that's not to say whether I'll be a success or not. I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life aiming to be successful. So when you, you say unlock the design potential of every human being, you say you're going to use the exponential technology, and then you say you're going to measure it in a positive, net positive way for a user. All of the pivots landed us into immersive technology, which we had a, a big play with in Kabuni version one. We built the world's first 3D immersive studio where you could literally walk into a room and use an iPad and move furniture around and create literally a board in, in imagine Pinterest in 3D. And we did a lot of study with, uh, I think it was UBC in Vancouver, sorry, Vancouver University and in immersive technology. So all of that learning landed me to say, we can unlock the design potential of, of every user, leveraging exponential technology. And I don't know how you feel when you put it off, but through science and technology, we can absolutely know that we leave you in a better place when you take it off. And 16 months, 18 months ago, that journey uh, started for us to really say, okay, now we have a why that we can really deliver on, on a promise and scale something that can equally manage profit and impact and not from a giving away perspective, but actually impact and profit, meaning we're leaving you as a user, we're making money from you, but we're also making sure that we're leaving you in a better place to kind of build up, build your life and go forward. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. Um, and that immersive um, research, immersive technology, it just, uh, the way it impacts a user or participant in it, uh, the learnings, the longevity of those learnings, it, um, uh, from a human experience standpoint, it's far more impactful than any other media form that we have. Well, if you, if you just think of the evolution of what I call the pixel world, right? Everything from a digital perspective is a pixel. If you really just use a little bit of common sense here, and I think Tim Cook at Apple has said this, that even the iPhone is out of date really today. And if you think of a digital experience in an immersive environment that as that technology grows and content grows and there's a relationship between hardware, software and content like an Apple did for the, for the smartphone, 
then the experience is not a one-fold improvement, a two-fold improvement. It's a 50-fold improvement. Yeah. Right. And you've got far more sensory modes active in an immersive environment than you have on a flat screen. So your emotional state, your present state, your active state in immersive are much higher performers than they are in, in, a, in a Zoom call that we're having today for, for this, this podcast. Yeah. So yeah. it's put aside what Kabuni's mission is in immersive. Immersive is the next revolution of relationship with the digital world, whether it's social, whether it's learning, whether it's um, teaching, you, you know, educating. It's, it's the next mode of, of, of medium that we're going to become. It's going to become standard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and where would you say kind of the uh, immersive technology or VR technology is, or I guess it's really XR, right? Because it could be augmented reality as well. Um, just in terms of the user experience, like how nascent do you feel it is? Where do you see it going? 95% of the market today is tethered PC based. So you're connected to a computer and you put a headset on. And so it's limited in freedom. Uh, late last year, um, Oculus HTC Vive launched the standalone, which is now a headset that's as powerful as your phone. And the next chipset, which is the Qualcomm XR2, I think will give a 50 fold experience and magnify that with 5g you're all of a sudden going to have a an experience that's just unrivaled i honestly for anyone who hasn't had the experience on the latest oculus headset will not be able to imagine this it's the most breathtaking experience that you can have um with a in a digital environment yeah. On the Quest, as an example. On the latest Quest, which is on the XR2 chip. Right. So um, it is It is going to change. It's going to change how we relationship. It's going to change how we're going to be social. It's going to change how we're going to learn. And it's going to change how we entertain ourselves. Yeah, amazing. So uh, just to use a, a, a metaphor or analogy, it's um, it's kind of in terms of um, cell phones, it's kind of where the flip phone technology was. We haven't even entered the realm of the, the smartphone just yet as it relates to immersive. Yeah, I'd say it's it's very much where the flip phone was, if it was a good analogy. And, and um, we the next generation, which will launch um, next year and we're part of that launch with a few other companies that are probably going to launch headsets and experiences on it um, is where the beginning of the smartphone era was where you know we've yeah. got this smartphone that did so much more and gave us such a much deeper experience that, that we had with our phone before that um, a immersive headset is going to have that same type of impact yeah no, absolutely. Well, um, you've made such great strides with a number of different verticals and, and bringing this technology to market. Share a little bit about um, your efforts on the sports side uh, with the ICC and um, what you're looking to bring there. Yeah, so we've the last so, you know, just to, to be clear, so we've built a lifestyle platform 
that is around wellness, escape and activity on five content pillars, which is adventure, arts, uh, education and uh, sports. And um, on sports with the ICC, we're going to bring to the world late next year an experience that you can train and coach in any cricket stadium with a selection of your favorite player. And when I say cricket stadium, when you put the headset on, it be the feeling will be as true as being in the stadium in real life, selecting your favorite cricket player. And I'll use Joffrey Archer as an example. So my son Caden could face Joffrey Archer bowling at him at the Oval or at Lords. And then we pick up all the biometric movements that he does in that experience in order to aid coaching methods to him. And I could put a headset on and be in that experience, his coach could. And the magic is that every user that's watching my son or playing with my son in a coaching environment could be anywhere in the world. Amazing. That's just phenomenal. That's great. Um, yeah. Very exciting. Pardon? We're, we're very excited about it. And I think yeah. the cricket world very excited about it too. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, this all sounds uh, tremendous. And um, 2021 will be a big year in terms of uh, launch and, and getting this into the hands of, of users. Um, uh, I just think it's, it's uh, tremendous. Um, it, it, I can't think of an arena of life that uh, this won't be able to touch or impact in some way. And so, you know, talking about a billion people, um, you said it was a lofty goal. You may have lowballed it. Yeah, I hope so. And um, yeah, I mean, I see we're, we're working with Stanford and Harvard on education and Parkinson's, uh, you know, ICC, we're working with Cirque du Soleil, um, our junior headset will be the first in the world to deliver um, scalable, personalized, immersive learning, which means now whether you're a teacher or a parent or a pupil between the age of six and 12, you can curate a week's worth of field trips. And those field trips can be taken, whether it's snow day at school or teachers got a conference and the kids at home or in the classroom and bringing a smile back to education and the fun back to a new level, I think will encourage more kids to learn faster in, and in a better environment and cheaper. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to ask Neil, um, with COVID, um, you know, it certainly has highlighted the need for this kind of connectivity, this kind of community building or engagement, um, it just feels all the more important now. Um, has that impacted the course of Kabuni um, in terms of your development and rollout? The opposite, and I'll tell you why. We, this, you know, this has been under development for, for 18 months and literally within months of COVID happening, our relationship with all the partners that we were talking to on the content side became a much more balanced, equal playing field than one of a startup trying to convince a, a Goliath to kind of play with us. So what parents, brands, industry have recognized is there needs to be a 
better experience between one and another and the one could be one-on-one -on -one or between brand and fan or brand and, and user in in a home environment or in a an office environment with limitations of traveling i think the new normal as we all describe it is different the world will come out of this different and the covid allowed us to get our message across of bringing a richer experience to a user anywhere in the world. And this notion we believe that everyone will have it in a kit bag, a backpack or a purse is something we believe would become the norm as the smartphone is today for, for an immersive headset. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, and that makes so much sense. Uh, so I get it in a way, it's actually been been of help. Um, Personally, I know that you've been impacted by COVID. Um, your father passed away as a result of contracting the virus. And again, sorry for your loss. Um, just thinking about that, reacting to that, I just I wonder if um, this idea of leave a legacy, was that kind of fortified as a result of that experience for you? It was, yeah, I, th I think it magnified. I think um, I having, you know, if you, as you, like yourself, you know, you go from being a kid growing up, having a crazy time in life, then getting married, having kids. And that journey, I think, humbles you no matter where your starting point is. Yeah. And then in that journey, there are events that I think humble you even greater. The... My dad passing was uh, difficult on a number of fronts. One is I, I didn't have a relationship with him and, and in COVID to try and resurrect one was impossible. So his last days in life were on a, on a Zoom call or on a WhatsApp. And um, I'll never forget this. Um, you know, the messages that I got about my father to me was one of, He's an amazing human being. This is what he's done for my mom because he was a, a, a care worker for end of mm. life experiences. And the, the things that I got back, but what profoundly stood out, it wasn't what home he owned, what car he owned. It's what he did for people in his community that shone out the most. Mm. And in that moment, I recognized that the notion of unlocking the design potential of every human being um, has a much greater meaning to me now because uh, when I do pass, I've always said I want my kids to be the same. My dad gave it a good shot of changing the world or making a little dent somewhere in the world. And seeing how my dad made a big dent in his community um, without technology, just being somebody that cared and, and wanted to be... Uh, impactful to the people that he served you know so the word serve really stood out to me who am i serving and how can i make their life better and so it magnified and um it's a moment that cemented that this is the right path we're taking and even so more at the end of life you know my dad was what experiences did he have you know he's telling me about my camping trip with him to, to aberdeen and I just felt this, God, if we could put a headset on right now and go to Aberdeen, you know, or things that he wouldn't yeah. do 
that he could have quickly experienced in his bed, you know. So it made me realize, never mind a child or an adult playing cricket, but even people that, that are end of life, how can we improve their, their, their last moments on, on earth? I think not just our technology, that's the level of technology. That's what technology can do. So, you know, I've experienced technology and science with the birth of my twins. And, and if you look at all your life journeys, you can now start to see how much of an impact science and technology does make and can continue to make. Yeah, no, absolutely, Neil. You're so right. And now you are a part of that process and uh, bringing science and technology in a brilliant way to, to people. And so uh, it's it's phenomenal. I uh, love the work you're doing at Kabuni and uh, wish you all the best of luck. Um, this has been such a superb conversation, Neil. You've been so generous with your time. I can't thank you enough. It didn't feel like a podcast. It felt like a, just two friends having a chat and catching, <laughs> which, which is always nice. And um, I hope the conversation has some value to inspire somebody and... and in life. I think it'll uh, inspire quite a few, um, especially your candor. And uh, thank you for engaging with it as a two-way conversation between friends. I very much felt that uh, as well. And so thank you for that compliment. And uh, yeah, I think um, there'll be a lot of interest in your experiences and uh, all that you're doing and all that you're going to bring to the world. So thank you once again, Neil. Thank you very much.